Welcome everybody to uh, the second episode of Who Touched the Thermostat. Uh, I got a very, uh, very special guest uh, with some great knowledge, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jacob Levy. He's going to come on. We're going to have a little chit chat about something that uh, is very important to uh, all of us here and uh, ultimately, uh, hopefully can spread some awareness and some knowledge on the history and also how communism uh, affects uh, America here today. So I'd like to officially uh, welcome our guest to uh, the episode, uh, Jacob. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So we're all familiar with communists, but I think when a lot of people talk to talk them or talk about them, I should say, they sort of almost use it as a buzzword. Like people use the word Nazi. Like, you know, we've all been had the accusation thrown at us by left to sell you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, or blah, 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 blah doesn't mean anything they couldn't exactly break down if you how italian fascism or german national socialism works but they don't care they just want the name to stick you know what i mean and i feel like there are people on the right who sort of use it the same way too so i think it's a good idea to have a background of what communists actually are and what they actually believe and how they've shown up in places around the world from time to time and what motivates someone to become one so communists can basically be broadly divided into two types um, the overarching theme of them is that they believe in no private property. They believe in a completely classless, fully equal society. But you, uh, you have one school of thought where you get um, what can be basically described as ANCOMs, anarchist communists, who yeah. want no, yeah, no state and um, you know, no private property and nothing like that. Then you, got, you have the guys, um, pardon me, who do want um, a state, and that state would be the collective owner of all the property pardon me and everything like that in the country now that's a very broad broad simplification of it um communists being communists they like to break themselves into various little subgroups they're like they're like they're infighting is like libertarians except even more so you would be astounded i mean <laughs> countries have had countries have had civil wars over communist infighting um it's really it becomes really something quite um quite spectacular really um, just the way they can break up. I, I, I believe in the 1970s, the British Communist Party split into something like seven different sub-parties. No one was voting for them anyway, so who cares? <laughs> um, now, I want to talk about also, um, so that's the broadly, the broad thing is it, it's based on this idea of this equality and justice kind of thing. That on its face sounds good. And I wanted to touch on that too. Um, there's a gentleman named Adlai Stevenson. He was, I believe he was a senator. He ran against um, Dwight Eisenhower in one of the election, I think Dwight Eisenhower's re-election campaign and lost. Um, but he had this phrase that communism is a dream of justice corrupted. That it's what they're starting with is a they're starting with the virtue. This virtue being justice. We all like justice. Justice is good, right? right. I don't think yeah. anyone would say yeah, no one's gonna say no, I don't like justice. No, no one would ever say something like that. But then they take it and they turn it into this thing that's kind of bad. Same thing with people like fascists. They take this this um the stream of brotherhood and glory and all this thing. And then they turn into something rather nasty. The same thing can be said with various like religious fanatics, you know, like radical Islamists or various other people like that that existed throughout history. It's good to be religious, right? I mean, you know, being, you know, being pi a pious person um, and caring about God. Well, that's all well and good. Those are very good things to do, but these people find a way to take it and make it do something bad. And that's kind of what communists do. Um, and I wanted to basically look at various places around the world where they popped up and look at why have they popped up there in those particular times and what attracted people to that at those particular times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is that, uh, looking at, uh, history and, and the, the start of, uh, the grand scheme of, of communism, uh, started in, in, uh, kind of, different ways than what people would uh you know think of uh it's not like it just appeared all of a sudden it, it kind of went through its iteration so to speak as far as the way that it, it it grew um and uh and also uh i guess you could say was perverted um in certain ways um uh, but uh you know uh around the world like you said i mean there there's been different uh different um, try, so to speak, everybody wants to always say like, oh, well, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't the correct way <laughs> to do communism. Like, yeah, they'll they'll um, always give it a shot. They'll always, they'll always be like, oh, well, we, we need, we need another shot. Right. You know? Right. Um, and you are correct. That it didn't just appear out of nowhere. Um, I wouldn't say that people call Marx its inventor. I wouldn't really even say Marx invented it. I think Marx took the various 
le uh, leftist tendencies that were circulating around Europe when he was writing, which is the 1840s, 1850s. And he kind of combined that all into one easily digestible form. That's one of the nice things they have going for us. The Communist Manifesto, it's 60 pages. Um, uh, Socialism by Mises, 10 times longer. You know, their, their signal to noise ratio is a lot narrower than yeah. ours, generally. And I yeah. think that's one of, one of the really advantageous things they have going for them. It also makes it uh, it also makes it easier to to look and 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 to to prepare for, it, so to speak. You know, look at something that's a a short guide and and be able to understand it, which kind of makes it uh ironic that uh it's been uh it's been so easy to be spread so so much. Whenever, like I said, it's a, it's it's a short manifesto and and it's very it's very direct uh, in how yes, things it's very, break down. Very concise. It's very yeah. concise. It's very well written. The man wasn't a bad writer. I can't can't say can't say Marx and Engels were bad writers. Um, they were. I can't really say they were stupid either. Because that's another thing you look at these people. Like in preparation for this um, for this podcast, I was reading Lenin, um, and it, it, it occurred to me before, but it really occurred to me again. This man is not a fool by any means, by any matter of the imagination. The man is probably smarter than you. He's probably smarter than me. He's definitely smarter than me. Um, he was probably one of the smartest men of his age, but. It takes a certain level of a smart man to do something particularly stupid. Yeah. Um, it like a normal stupid person will think, "Oh, ho ho, I'm going to put my hand on the stove." Ow, fuck, that hurts. Part of my language, I shouldn't swear on here. Yeah, you're fine. Um, you can swear. But yeah, so a, a normal stupid person will burn their hand on the stove. A smart person with bad ideas will do things that are much more dangerous. But since we talk about Lenin, let's get over. Let's let's uh, let's scoot over to Russia to the Soviet Union and look at how that became a thing and why people thought that was a good idea. So let's start. We start in the Russian Revolution, or sorry, the Bolshevik Revolution. There were two Russian revolutions. There was one that deposed the Tsar, and then there was another coup afterwards where the Bolsheviks, the communists, overthrew their democratically elected government. But Russia in the early 20th century was in really this deep state of crisis. Um, they had a, an absolute monarchy, not like a British style monarchy where, you know, they still have a, the parliament really makes all the calls and the queen is just there to, you know, wave at people and walk around with her corgis and do things like that. No, they had a real deal, absolute monarchy. Um, they were badly behind the rest of the world in terms of modernization, um, famines and things like that were common. They were really in this very bad shape. And then World War One happens and World War One affects Russia very bad. Very, very, very badly. World War II affected them extremely badly. World War One, not as badly, but still very badly. Um, and these guys are being taken off of their farms and out of their factories. Guys who really don't necessarily know how to like read or write. I've never used a mechanical object more complicated than like, you know, like a drill press or a plow. And they're suddenly being sent to these countries they don't know the name of to fight and die over a war that started in Serbia, where they probably don't know where that is. I don't think even most people in America could find <laughs> Serbia on a map, yeah. let, alone, let alone most Russians in 1914. And then to make matters worse, they, the war is going very badly for them. They're losing quite a lot of men. Um, the war is getting very expensive. Taxes are going through the roof. Um, there's massive food shortages, bread riots. I mean, it's a really, it's a really very nasty situation and into the situation steps lenin now lenin didn't he wasn't the first communist in russia they had, had a long-standing tradition of socialist parties that existed in russia and always had this back and forth with the government but now the government was really struggling lenin and his boys could really you know push to the advantage and what ended up happening was um there was a revolution and the Tsar was overthrown and then a um and then a uh, provisional government was set up, uh, a, a proto-republic of sorts. And then the Bolsheviks overthrew that. But they had a lot of popular support. So why did they have popular support? Because we look back at the Soviet Union, we go, my God, what a shit show. Good Lord. Like, how could anyone have thought that was a good idea? Because someone had to have thought that was a good idea. You know, they didn't, they didn't like, spellbind the people with some kind of magic spell to make them all think this is a good idea. They had people had reasons to think that was a good idea. Smart people had reasons to think that was a good idea. And what these people at this particular time were looking at is they're looking at like capitalism and monarchy and empires, and all the things they were used to living with this. And they're looking at it and thinking, my God, this is making my life really miserable right now. Right. Right. Because it, it was, um, 
uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, Gulag Archipelago guy, he wrote that uh, even he, and he is a very hardcore Russian nationalist, um, is the first to admit that Russia needed change. They needed change. They needed change badly. They just happened to get a change that they did not need at all. Um, but they needed something. They needed an, into this environment where people need a change, step Lenin. And Lenin is more of the state-oriented kind of um, kind of communist. His idea of the, the, what, they, what they had was this idea of um, the party vanguard, where you know the people or the peasants aren't always smart enough to form their own political party. So we need like to be ruled by this little core of intellectuals who will make kind of all the decisions for them. Yeah. Which, in my opinion, was them kind of coping for the fact that like, oh gosh, we're all these intellectuals and we're running the country now, and like we're supposed to, supposed to be a workers' party, and like none of us have like ever worked on like a tool or die press in our life um you know because for the intellectuals doesn't have the same sort of ring (laughs) yeah yeah but that's that's where that kind of became a thing so you can see in that particular case um these people were in a nasty situation um and they they wanted out and someone gave them an out um lenin's logo in russia I can't say it in Russian. I used to be able to, but far gone. It was a peace, land, and bread. Who doesn't want those things? Now, of course, they ended up getting none of those things. Um, they got the opposite of those things. Um, they got war, uh, invasion, and most certainly not, not much bread to speak of. But at the time, it sounded good to them. It, 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 to the very desperate people, it sounded good. Yeah. Um, now let's uh, let's swing let's swing back across the ocean real quick, because we're all familiar with how socialism has worked in Latin America, Cuba, Venezuela, a whole bunch of other countries. Really, once you get down in um, in South America, they've all I think they've all had a communist insurgency at some point. Right. Um, everyone's famous with the case of Pinochet in Chile, which I'm not going to get into because that's I'm not touching that one with a ten foot pole. At least <laughs> at least not at least not until I've gotten like you know a little bit more of this. <laughs> but. So why did why was why was it popular there? Because you wouldn't think it would take off there, right? I mean, you know, these people are very, you know, religious um, Catholics. The idea of a totalitarian atheist worker state doesn't sound like it would appeal much to them. What you have to think about is um, in the in South America, in Central America, Latin America, the way that a lot of these Western companies, specifically American companies, were behaving. Guys like the United Fruit Company, Dole. Um, they were almost acting like what communist propaganda would describe an American corporation as. Mm. Like if you like if you ask Lenin to like describe an American corporation, he would give you this like nasty and you know, this villain in a top hat with you know he's got a mustache, he's twirling while he, <laughs> he walk, yeah. while he yeah. while he walks around on on the backs of orphans, so his feet don't have to touch the ground. That's kind of what these companies were behaving like, and what that did is that ended up opening up the situation where, um, you know, guys like Che Guevara, um, you know, uh, Castro and guys like them could step into this and say, oh, yeah, this is this is really screwed up. Why don't we try something different? And in a lot of cases, people are like, I have nothing else to lose. Now, they basically ended up right back where they started. But you can kind of see that these people don't do this stuff because they're dumb or they're or they're evil. Now, in, in some cases, they most certainly are dumb or evil or dumb and evil, or even worse, smart and evil. Um, and what, uh, and what's one of the things on that note, one of the things that makes communism so dangerous is once you get the people that have good intentions have established this, then it's very easy for people who are smart and evil to climb to the top of their worker state they've just made. Absolutely, yeah. Um, this happened a lot with Stalin's administration, um, where you had these, psych- these guys who were basically literal psychopaths who would like rise to the head of the security department by basically getting the guy before them assassinated. Um, <clears throat> the very last one during Stalin's administration, he was certified as a psychopath. The name, man's name is Laventi Beria. And he was a mass murderer, a commie, and he was also a pedo, too. In fact, so that's actually what got him shot. After Stalin died, they were like, it was kind of an open secret that he was a pedo. Um, and, you know, but no one, could, no one could do anything to hurt him because Stalin was in power. So as soon as Stalin died, Khrushchev and all the leaders of the army and everyone, they literally hauled him out back behind the Politburo and put a 762 by 39 through his forehead. That was the end of that. Well, that's one way to go. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've actually, he's the one guy, I've actually never heard any commie defend him. Um, I've heard them defend Mao, Stalin, I've heard them defend all those kinds of people. 
I've never actually heard them defend him. He's the one guy where people are just like, there's really no defending him. I mean, when guys like Nikita Khrushchev and Grigory Zhukov and these other high-ranking Soviet functionaries who are mass murderers find you so horrible of a person, they don't even bother to give you a, a fake trial. Like, it's not going to give you a trial. They don't even give you a fake trial. It's just, oh, Stalin is dead. Grabbed him by a shirt collar, yanked him around the back of the building. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they were they were prepared. They were waiting for their moment. They, they were they were waiting. They were like as soon as they were as soon as he drops dead. <clears throat> yeah, going for it. But, yeah, this guy out. Yeah, and um, a kind of a, a similar situation. If we if we pop back now over to over to China, um, China was in this very very bad situation. You'll notice that's you'll notice that's a commonality here. It tends to be people in bad situations and people who are threatened or have been wronged by Western countries. It tends to be the thing. Um, China was in this very bad period they had a uh, around the year 1900 or so um the chinese empire collapsed they're there they had shut them off the world for so long that they were falling behind and eventually things just got became too much you know they also had massive problems with drug addiction because the british were literally pumping opium into their country um you know we've all heard of that uh you know the cia pumping crack in the black neighborhoods, yeah. which was, was yeah. the thing that happened that did happen yeah. um the british and china picture that times like a thousand mm. um and when, when the Chinese actually tried to say, no, you can't, you can't literally keep shipping drugs into our country, the British actually blew up their Navy or what, whatever Navy they had. Yeah. yeah, it got very nasty. So then you have the situation where China collapses into anarchy and warlords, and you have the civil war between the Chinese nationalists, who were better than communists, but they still kind of sucked in their own right. Um, they, had, they had major issues, and it was honestly part of their part of them being so repressive is part of what let the communists get that much power in the first place. Um, and then the Japanese invade China, um, which kills something like 20 million Chinese people. I mean, the, the casualties are just astronomical, uh, just mind boggling. Um, you could take, if you want to understand what a bad position China was in before Mao came into, into power and during China's World War II casualties. So imagine the Eiffel Tower. It's pretty big. It's about like 400 feet by 400 feet, right? Yeah. Now imagine take, filling that with dead bodies until the dead bodies are 1.2 miles high. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, China's, yeah. that's China's World War II casualties. Yeah. For Russian World War II casualties, take that and add another, like, add another like thousand feet onto that on top. It's, it's mind-boggling. A gi- like, imagine this 400 by 400 mile high column of just dead human flesh. That's what they went through. Um, and so in the, in the aftermath of that, um, the Chinese civil war resumed and Mao was able to win and bring stability to the country. And that's what he did. He promised these people, hey, you know, you're these peasants. You've been going through all these terrible things. It's not your fault. It's these other guys fault. You know, we can we can help raise you up. And that's getting a very, very and I'm not, I don't want to get into like Mao's red book and all the very specific doctrinal differences between Leninist and Maoist thought. Yeah, yeah. I'm more. Yeah, that's it's 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 dry enough as it is, believe me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there, well, there, that's that's kind of the thing with communism. Whenever you look at like the the, the you can either go with the the cliff notes and uh, get the gist of it, or or you could be into it for hours and hours and hours because there's so many different uh, breakdowns of how everything was. Uh, that's that's the one. That's the one really nice thing they have they have going for them. You know, it's like it's like. So libertarianism is like is like an M two four nine machine gun. Like you have to really you have to really do your homework. You have to really know how the thing works, how to properly feed it, how to properly take care of it and maintain it, and you know go through all the all the steps if there's a malfunction of some kind. Whereas communism is, is an AK forty seven. Here it is. Take it. Yeah. Here's the yeah. here's 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 the safety. You turn that off. You rock it in. Pull it left. Your lever. You're ready to go. Um, and that's that's kind of the the I shouldn't say the beauty of it, but the nice thing about it is it has this ability to appeal to people who are kind of being shit on and get them into it. That's why it's never going away. Like, it's never going away. Um, Three thousand years from now, they will still be communists if they haven't all killed us by then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a it is a, a dream of justice corrupted. And as long as people dream of justice, there will be people whose dream is corrupted. And it'll end up in this way. Now, you also you also mentioned how it um, how it um, ended up in America, um, and in America it was basically driven by two major things. There was um, people who were responding to like the racial oppression in the South, 
And when I say racial oppression, I'm not talking about like nowadays, like when people talk about like critical race theory. I'm talking about like this is 1920, like whether or not lynchings are wrong is still controversial. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm talking like like literally like campaigns, like campaigns of terror being waged against these people for trying to cast their votes or exercise their Second Amendment rights. I might say that, too. Um, one of the first one of the first gun laws in this country was passed to disarm black citizens to leave them at the mercy of the planners. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, those were, you know, all. Yeah, so I don't want to, on, on one hand, I don't want to be one of those like social justice kind of people, but at the same time, I'm not going to pretend that history is what it isn't. So, with that in mind, so that was kind of one of the things that drove people to kind of um, to look into communism. And then the other thing, too, is, of course, the Great Depression. Um, and, or, and also that um, in the, you know, very early part of the last century, factory conditions were rather terrible. Uh, one of the things um, I remember um, because of the, because of this, because concerns about this with like Yiddish immigrants, not like my, like Jewish immigrants, not like my, my grandparents specifically, but like other people like them who came to America in the early 1910, 1920s. Um, they kind of uh, socialist thought, maybe not necessarily communist, but socialist thought was kind of popular with them. Because they had come from Russia, where Russia was in kind of a shit show, and then they come to America and they see, you know, racial oppression, and then they see, um, they see these like terrible factory conditions in like like New York, like you know, I'm sure you've heard the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, um, yeah. where they, yeah, they, these, I mean, they 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 locked these girls in so they couldn't take smoke breaks, and so they all freaking fried or jumped to their deaths. I mean, people looked at that and they're like, okay, you know, maybe this Lenin guy over Ruski Land has a point. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's now. Of course, the irony there is, you know, once you once they get communism, they they certainly don't get worker safety, and they certainly don't get any kind of racial justice. I've had debates with communists about this all the time. Um, in every communist country I can think of, or almost everyone, I'd say about seventy five percent, there has been some kind of racial discrimination in some form. Um, in the Soviet Union, in particular, what they would kind of do is. You know, Russia, the Soviet Union had all these different minorities, you know, it had Poles, um, Czechs, Lithuanians, Latvians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, um, all these different sorts of people. And, and what they did is they methodically went around from each of these groups, people to the other, took all their smart people or people who could possibly put up a fuss and just put one in the back of their heads. You know, they systematically liquidated their way across these various groups of people, which was definitely racist and in some cases outright genocidal um deliberate deliberate extermination attacks on various ethnicities absolutely so i guess my, my point of saying all this isn't to say that communists are good we should all go be them because even, <laughs> even because even by their own standards they failed um even by you know even by not only did they fail to provide a um a long-standing functioning state because they you know as you know Mises, the calculation problem you know once you once you have the government or some collective council making all of the decisions for what gets made, you, you, you'll, you can't respond to consumer demand. And then you'll just, you know, it's like, it's like not having your senses. Consum right. Consumer demand is your senses, your eyes and ears. And if you don't have that, you're just going to bump into the wall and fall over and die, exactly. which is precisely yeah. what the Soviet Union did. So not only did they fail in that regard, but they also failed in regards to, um, to um, providing this kind of equality that they had really wanted. Um, they, they, they really, what they basically ended up doing is they replaced this in the Soviet Union, at least they replaced the czar with just the czar, except now he's scarier, you know, like, <laughs> well, I mean, I th isn't that kind of the, uh, uh, that's kind of the cycle of, uh, of communism replacing whatever bad thing was before it. It is. There's um. There's this book I actually read. Um, it was called uh, "In the Court of the Red Tsar." Um, it was about it was about uh, by someone Montefiore. It's about Stalin, his inner administration. I greatly recommend it. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Very riveting too. Um, you know, it's funny, interesting aside about Stalin was that he had like what would be considered like a hillbilly accent. Um, Stalin was not. He was not an ethnic Russian. He was from Georgia, the country of Georgia. Um, so he had like what we like what the the American equivalent of what he, his accent would be like a hillbilly drawl, like uh you know like some kind of like I shouldn't say like your accent but like like your Careful. accent was thicker, 
<laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm messing with you. Yeah, yeah, but that was so like so like when you when you imagine Stalin talking to people, like when he's talking to his officers, just imagine him with like a super thick southern accent. And like that's that's what it was like. It's like, well shoot. Well, I don't suppose we're gonna have to liquidate them pairs. It's shucks, you know? It makes him a little bit less scary, but not by much, but he's still he's still very scary. <laughs> but that was a, a brief aside about him. So yeah, that's um and in the in the contemporary United States, I don't think they're really. I mean, I, I struggle to put my finger on just how dangerous they still are in the United States because my rule of thumb is you should all because they're always going to be around. You should always assume they're dangerous. Yeah. Um, but as we've seen, you know, we've seen in the past, um, you know, in the past month, in the past last year, with you know all the the rioting and various things, people are like, oh, it's a communist uprising, it's a Bolshevik uprising, you know. Mm. But I, th- which I think there is some truth to that. But if you think, first of all, how many of those people were just out there because they wanted free shit? You know, yeah, yeah. How many of those people were out there because you know they might be people like us who just legitimately have complaints with the way policing is handled in this country, sure, and sure. and just chose to express it in a way that we would not consider legitimate. Um, how many of these people were just liberals and like white kids who just wanted to get their PC points, you know, for going out and being seen? I saw a lot of this, by the way. And then, and then once you get past all of that, how many of those people are like active, actual, hardcore, dedicated, organized communists? Yeah, I mean, and I mean that's that's a solid point. Um, you know, I mean it. I guess it's kind of one of those things. Like even with uh, you know libertarianism, I mean, there's kind of some of that too. You know, you have you have people that are uh, party members, and then you also have folks that are that are small L so to speak. And then you have yeah. people running around like Ben Shapiro that say that they're libertarian. Um, you know, so it's like you have people that claim labels and stuff or whatever, whenever uh, it really breaks down, they're not, they're either not really educated on the idea or uh, they're not really active. Um, you know, like pushing uh, it as, as a political organization or what have you. But um, you know, you, you look back, uh, I guess, looking back, you know, wherever the, uh, like, you know, the Red Scare and stuff, like, looking back mm-hmm. into the U.S. history, wherever it it was one of those things where they called it out was like, you know, we're being infiltrated. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we we have, you know, commies in our midst. And it's like, cool. um, you know, and, and, and some people sat back and were like, oh, no, that's crazy. Like, that's not happening. You're just paranoid. McCarthy was largely correct. Right, I didn't it, say he was completely correct. He's crazy. He was largely correct. He was crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, he. What he really did wrong was he went after homosexuals because apparently being gay makes you means you're a commie. I mean, I know a lot of gay commies, but I don't think just because someone's gay yeah, means no. they're, they're yeah. homosexual or because it means they're a communist. I don't really see that. Right. The other thing is he went after the army. Um, and keep in mind, this is after the army had just gone out of Korea when they had been stacking communists and getting stacked in return. Frankly. Um, and he goes after them because, oh, the army's full of reds. He implied that um, President Eisenhower was a communist. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the day where you were, you know, expected to treat the president with a um, larger degree of respect than you do now. Yeah. You know, you could say, you know, you say, oh, Obama, Obama is Mao and, you know, Trump is Hitler. And people go, oh, whatever. If you said something like that back then, that was a very serious thing today to say. There was this idea back then that you had this certain kind of respect for the president and the president was supposed to behave respectfully in return. Um, so that really got him in. And also he was publicly drunk on national television. That didn't help either. <laughs> hey, you well, know, there's a, nothing wrong with sipping yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, Obviously, I, I no, we, you, you can look today and see that there's uh, several people that you question whether they're <laughs> whether they're uh, sober or not from in between each uh, appearance on TV. Um, yeah, right, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the – you sit there and uh, you look back at history and you see – um, you know, the ins and outs and the accusations. And then you also see, uh, I can't remember his name, but the former uh, KGB uh, agents or that came out and basically said, like, those oh, you're talking were about, correct. Uh, uh, not, not, not Suharov. Oh, what was the gentleman's name? I know the guy you're talking about. Yeah, I can't. I, I feel I know stupid. The guy, I, I know can't. the guy. Uh, Bezmanov. Yuri Bezmanov. Yuri yeah, yeah, Bezmanov. yeah. So coming in, basically saying, like, oh, yeah, it was happening. There, You know, there's infiltration. There's no doubt about it. So um, I, I wanted. To, I want, I'm very glad you brought up Bezmanov because I'm not totally sure I agree with that point. 
you have to be kind of careful with defectors, mm-hmm. you know, because he was a KGB defector, right? If he betrayed his own country, why would he tell the truth to us? That's you know true. I mean? I mean, it's a solid point. I mean, that's kind of the thing for me is whenever it comes down to a lot of things, I I, I take everything with a grain of well, salt. I think, I think what I think what Bezmov what Bezmov did, and keep in mind also, um, when we when we were going into Iraq in two thousand three, one of um, the Bush administration's main sources for the intel that turned out to be completely false as an Iraqi defector. Um, if I remember correctly, the gentleman claimed he was like a high-ranking Iraqi official. He was a taxi cab driver. And they believed him. Now, I, I don't think Yuri Bezma was a taxi cab driver. I think he was a KGB agent. Yeah. But I think he realized that, hey, if I go to America, I can, you know, I can, like, I can basically make a career out of, off of telling American conservatives what they want to hear. Sure. Yeah. Which I think is exactly what he did because, you know, he kind of made this claim that like all of like the civil rights movement and the hippie anti-war movement in Vietnam was all, you know, was all engineered by the USSR to undermine the United States. Um, which I, I mean, I know they, I do know for them from their, from their documents, they did try to do that. But like, you look at like, if here's like the anti-war anti like opposition to Vietnam movement, like here's the extent to which the Soviet union affected it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Like it was, they were, they were basically like throwing gasoline on what was already a forest fire, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they were actually, it was actually kind of funny. Um, speaking of, we were talking vaguely about civil rights earlier. Um, uh, they actually, we did learn out, I, I believe the archive of these KGB papers is called the Mitrolnik archive. Um, they did actually learn. So there was this, uh, this rumor among American conservatives in the sixties that, um, that uh, Martin Luther King was, uh, he was secretly a communist. Yeah, he was, you know, yeah. he was plotting, he was being led by the KGB. Turns out the KGB actually was trying to undermine him. Um, they were spreading rumors. Well, the F- it's funny. The FBI was spreading rumors that he was working for the KGB, and the KGB was spreading rumors that he was working for the FBI. <laughs> it's, almost, <laughs> it's almost kind of funny in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's not even where all that ends because, I mean, JFK, they talk about his assassination was, was partially organized or uh, completely organized by uh, uh, Soviets and, and things yeah. of that nature, so... Who knows what if, how what much? If everyone, uh, what, if, what if they all just shot him at once? Like, right? What if, like, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Masons and the Soviets and the CIA and the Israelis <laughs> and the aliens and they all they all just like all took their six five Carcanos and they all just lit him up at once? Or yeah. alternatively, what if no one shot him? His head just did that. Uh, yeah, we're in a simulation. Anything could happen. Yeah, exactly. I do want to go into a very brief aside about this because I've said kind of a lot of what I wanted to say about communists and why they do their thing. If we're going to get very, I want very briefly want to say my piece about the JFK assassination. Sure, yeah, go ahead. I think Lee Harvey Oswald did it. Think about, it, think about, it, right? If you don't like JFK, you want to get rid of JFK. You don't need a gun. You need a camera. The man was a serial mm-hmm. adulterer, and people were already shaky about his moral foundations because he was a Catholic in a time where it was actually controversial to have Catholics in power. As stupid as that sounds to us now, like yeah. why would that be an issue? If all you have to do is catch him with Marilyn Monroe, that's all you got to do. Or one of his any other countless um, mistresses that he, I'm sure he bedded in his secret White House love bunker. Because if it gets out to the press, the United States of America is having an affair. I mean, look what it did to Bill Clinton in 1993. I mean, and that's 1993. That's after the, you know the moral degradation had already set in. Right. Yeah. This, is this is 1963. If you want to take JFK out, all you got to do is you just got to catch him with one of his hoes. That's all I do. So, so that's what a, so if, if I was like, if he was like the KGB or like, you know, the, the CIA or the Mossad or like, you know, MI6 or one of those kinds of guys, or like the Cubans, those are like smart people. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're people that would know this and would figure out, Hey, so, okay. So what we can do, we want Kennedy gone. So we could, we could like stage like a high level, incredibly secret mission that if we're compromised could cost world war three in order to assassinate him. Or we could just try to catch him, uh, pick up, get a picture of him shagging someone who was not his wife, which he does every day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But you know who you know who would shoot JFK though? A kind of slightly deranged ex-marine turned communist with access to a mail order six five Mercado. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 my thought. That's my thought. I think it honestly. I, I think Oswald was just nuts. Now I'm not saying there weren't people who wanted to take Kennedy out, but sure. I think those people. Yeah, were I mean, there's plenty of people. I'm sure. I mean, at any point in time, I think any. Uh, I mean, I think any president faces some kind of uh, yeah. some kind of uh, situation like that. Yeah, but- the, the, 
the KGB was probably waiting in like the nearest hotel with their cameras, waiting for him to like sneak away, like go see Marilyn Monroe. And they just hear this off the distance. Like, what was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so wait, they shot him. Damn. Yeah. We, did, we, did we do that? Yeah. Who? And they called, they called, they called, they called, they got on the rotary phone. They called the CIA. Hey, did you guys do that? No, we thought it was you. Who did it? <laughs> this is just a little brief historical side in my head. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so many different takes and now there's like, you know, they release some of the documents, uh, and, uh, you know, there's all these different documentaries from different points of view. And, uh, the, the bringing up the KGB connection with Lee Harvey Oswald was one of those, uh, more like the Bigfoot documentaries, like asking wild yeah. questions, you know, but I did yeah, watch yeah. it and I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, there's some things here that could add up, but you know, at the end of the day, who knows? I mean, there's everybody has has their enemies, and of course, if you're the president of the United States and um, you specifically are JFK, you probably have a boatload of people there standing in line, determining how they're going to get rid of you. So, yeah, um, right. Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald probably showed up to that book depository, and there's like a line of dudes with six five Parkados <laughs> out the building. He's like, you get in line. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, uh, I mean, anyway. I was I was gonna go back to go back to communists more generally though. And we were talking about how to what extent they are dangerous in America today. Yeah. And I was saying that I was saying they weren't that dangerous, but now I start to think about it, and I think maybe they actually are a little more dangerous than I might have initially given them credit for. Because they have kind of basically completely taken over academia and um really almost every institution at this point. Yeah. Um and then also uh, Antifa, I want to talk about them too. I think that um I think that people um, people simultaneously over and underestimate them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like people, you'll you'll hear like, oh, they're a bunch of wimps. You know, they're a bunch of pushovers. They won't last a second in a real fight. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, um, you know, you you have these people saying, oh, they're the greatest threat to Western civilization that's ever existed. Yeah. Which is it? I I honestly I tend to kind of lean somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like I I wouldn't I don't think they're you know the greatest threat that's ever been, but they're definitely threatening. I mean you gotta think like I have these you know libertarian dudes that just shrug them off like oh they're just nothing. I'm like dude, you are just sitting here like just sticking and unsticking various stuff onto your fifth AR build for the day that you might actually one day rise up against the government. They're kind of out there doing it. They're getting in fistfights with riot cops, dude. Like, they actually have, they're organized. They're trained on things like squad tactics. They have, like, you know, trained in, like, combat medic kind of stuff. Like, honestly, if I had to, like, go assault a position, I would almost rather have, like, a decently armed squad of Antifa guys behind me than, like, some boob boys. You know what I mean? Like, just because they've actually I been I don't know here. about that. I mean, it depends on who you're talking about because... I mean, I understand what you're trying to get at. That it's not that it's not that all of what you see of Antifa is is your, uh, you know, your. I'm, keep, keep talking. I am going to move this out to the porch very briefly. I apologize oh, for not having a commensurate studio, but <laughs> I do want a cigarette after I download oh, that. So, I mean, the thing oh. is that uh, ultimately, you know, whenever you look at the uh, the makeup of Antifa and like what you see, like, you know, there's always going to be like the gotcha videos and stuff or whatever. But to your point, they are organized. And I think that they're much more organized and scarily enough. I think that they are backed by people that have the um, necessary funds and um, means uh, to be able to, to kind of keep them going and, and charge them up, whether that's, um, um, whether that's, uh, weapons or, um, you know, food and other things that are necessary to keep up the fight, so to speak. But, um, so, I mean, yeah, I definitely think that people shouldn't just write off Antifa. Um, but it, like you said, it is funny because some of the same people that would be like, oh, Antifa is nothing. Um, well, on the flip side, say like Antifa is the greatest threat to, um, you know, everything, western or what have you now i will say that uh you know from from a libertarian standpoint uh you know i I see a lot of people that uh kind of kind of run with the the rhetoric of of like just attack all commies and everything and uh i do think it's important to point out that from a libertarian perspective if you have a respect for property rights and um 
you know, you want to be able to operate the way that you want to. Uh, like, for instance, for me, like if I want to operate in an ANCAP society, then I should be able to, uh, to, to operate that way. But if some libertarian that respects my property somewhere else wants to make a commune and live their little communist life like that's up to them as long as they're not forcing me or anybody else to be a communist or be part of their you know their system then you know so be it let them let them do what they're doing over there and uh you know that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm on my podcast uh gonna jump up and and uh you know high five everybody but uh you know i do think that it's important to to realize that there are folks like that that are like yeah you know, uh, private property rights, yada, yada. But at the same time, uh, I personally, you know, not me, but, you know, say for instance, uh, you know, Libcom or whatever saying that they, they would rather operate in, in a, in a communist system. And it's like, fine, you know, have fun, do that over there. Uh, but, uh, you know, wherever it looks on the grand scheme of things, uh, I don't think that, uh, most of the people that are, uh, carrying around, uh, you know, commie, uh, paraphernalia and stuff necessarily are going to be libcoms that are just like, hey, you do your ANCAP thing over there, and I'll do do my commune over here. And well, Trump, well, Trump, the, the trouble with that though is they they think ANCAP's fascist. They think they think we're all they think we're all about these. I guess that's also a bit of a generalization. Um, I, mean, I suppose we have kind of they taunt with them in some cases, but I how should I put it? How should I put this properly? I, I I'm I'm not saying we all everyone go out into the streets and go mow them down kind of thing. You know that's that's not gonna that's not gonna go well unless they're attacking you. Unless you have you're in like a written house situation where you're doing your thing and then they start they start charging you. In which case you got to do what you got to do. Um, but and I have had people tell me this before. It's like well what they're doing is they're they're fighting against the state, but they're not really fighting against the state for the right reasons. They're fighting because they kind of like aren't getting a state that they want. Now, it was hard to generalize about Antifa. It's hard to generalize about all the people out last year that were going out to protest for various reasons. Um, it's, it's hard It's hard to do because there's a lot of different ones. And the leftists in general are notoriously fractitious. They're notorious for splitting into various groups of various different kinds um, and kind of going at each other and all having different ideological causes behind them. So it's... It's hard to put an exact. It's hard to put an an, ex, an exact, um, an, an exact prescription for what it, what should be done with that situation. Well, I mean, I, I would just I would just say generally though that I I wouldn't really go so far as to trust them. You know what I mean? No. Well, that's the thing is I'm not. I like I said I'm not going to align with with you know communists. I'm not going to uh, go out of my way to. Uh, to bridge build with communists because ultimately, oh, no, I, wouldn't piss, his, I wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, at the end of the day, man, I mean, it's, history is, is uh, one of those things that repeats itself. So uh, I, I realize that normally, if you, if you try to uh, to align or ally yourself with communists, eventually they're going to come back around and stab you in the back. So yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to be on your team, but I'm also not going to uh, like if if you respect my private property and even if you hate me because I'm handicapped or whatever. That's on you, man. But if you if you want to go over here and do your, you know, libcom stuff over here, I do my cap stuff over here. I don't see a problem with that. All I'm saying is that within uh, libertarian libertarian thought, I think that that exists. And like you said, I mean, communism is never going to go away. There's always going to be a group of people that think that it it can work or you know it is the best way, and yeah. let them have that. But as long as they aren't. Uh, you know, actively trying to forward the state uh, taking that power and being able to uh, to actually, uh, you know, force that on me at gunpoint, then they can stay over there. Now, with that said, I don't believe that the majority of people that are uh, that are claiming that they're, you know, whatever communists or you know the Antifa folks that uh, that. Uh, you know, LARP is communist and stuff. I don't think that uh, those people have any indication in, or any kind of inclination to uh, allow um, capitalists or, you know, anarcho-capitalists to, uh, to survive if they were to um, become, you know, extremely violent. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Yeah, but no, yeah I, I just think yeah, that's I important because I see it all the time. I see people that, uh, I, I mean, personally, 
I, I stay in my lane uh, and, uh, you know, rock with the, the, the end cap uh, movement and, and trying to uh, stay in that kind of realm. But, uh, you know, just after watching and listening to some people have some conversations, it's like if as long as you respect what I'm doing here, then, you know, you can do your thing over there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They can have their, they can, have, they want to have communes. They can go right ahead. Sure. Give a shit. Um, they, they, inevitably they're going to fail, but you know, that's, that's on them. I mean, they'll they figure can, that out, yeah, but exactly. it won't yeah. happen to me cause they'll be over there. Yeah, exactly. Right. They can, they can do their own thing, but I think the problem in this case is that we're not, we're not really at that kind of like ideal stateless society no. sort of thing. We're no. in this, Society, we do have a major state. I will say this though: for all their efforts, they've been remarkably unsuccessful at actually translating into political results. Like they've gotten, like they've gotten a lot of the woke shit into the popular mainstream discourse. Like they've gotten those, they've really accelerated like the woke shit taking over, like the universities and the press and every major business. But like they've not actually succeeded in like seizing that much private property. They've not yeah. really succeeded in getting the government to do what they wanted. Like Joe Biden is not a communist. People call him that. No, he's not. He's not by any stretch of the imagination. And neither is his literal cop vice president. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like you, you think about it. I mean, the guy, you know, like, where's the marijuana legalization? A lot yeah. of the communists wanted the marijuana legalization. Where is that? Where is it now? No, we got a menthol ban. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, we're they're not. Like they're they're good at translating their actions into cultural results. They're not quite as good at getting political results. They're good at getting companies to like pretend to, you know, to be like them. They're good at getting companies like big companies like Amazon to take on these woke positions, but they're not actually good at seizing Amazon. It's one thing to get to get Jeff um to get Jeff Bezos to say, oh, yeah, you know, BLM, you know, yeah, all that. It's another thing to actually seize his means of production. They're, yeah. They've not really they've not really even made a dent. In right. That. Right. Um, so that's that's my thing. Like they've made they've made almost this kind of hollow victory where they've gotten this on the cultural front. I think they've largely intimidated a lot of people into taking on some of their beliefs. But when it comes to like their actual wanting to seize the means of production they've not gotten very far in that in fact they've probably gotten the opposite i don't think they've really um by blowing up a bunch of small businesses all that happens is big capital ends up seizing that um your business ends up taking those over it's like oh you blew up all the mom and pop shops well now yeah. they're gonna build a walmart there so good job you know good good job commies you know <laughs> well, well, well done well yeah, well, really I saw I, I, I I've seen uh, the phrasing passed around that talk about how like um, mom and pop shops like they should all go out of business because they they don't afford you know living wages or what have you or they don't give benefits and all these things and uh, it's just so ironic to me because it's like you know on one side of it like you are up against the 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 big uh power hungry people like you were talking about and and south or central and south america like the the evil must mustache twir twirling capitalist um you know that's just like you know that's that's the 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 evil in the eyes of you know of uh of those that are spreading communism and then you have like these little mom and pop shops that are like just operating at means you know to be able to to keep to stay open and to employ a couple local people and to provide a good service to local people and and all these things and then you know but then you have people there saying this i've seen it multiple times somebody pointed out to me and they're like have you seen this i'm like that's actually like old ideology like that's old yeah. phrasing oh it's and, very it's very old phrasing and it's um, just, i was actually i was ahead. reading the communist i was reading the communist manifesto earlier like i said in, in preparation for this and they actually, even Marx and Engels himself talked about this. As far as they're concerned, some capitalists are worse than others, but all capitalists are capitalists yeah. as far as they're concerned. Yeah. So a local, like, small capital owner, still bad. You know what I mean? Like, that's still that's still something they don't like. And in a lot of cases, um, they see, actually, like, the small businesses, like the lower middle class, as the most dangerous aspect. Because those are the people that really go to bat for big capital because they want to become part of that. Now yeah. that's in his own words. I'm kind of summarizing. Yeah, yeah. It's not that you know the communists have suddenly turned against 
small business owners. They've always been against that. They've been against that since, well, what was it, 1848, I believe he published the manifesto, something like that. Yeah, so that's, that's nothing That's nothing new on their part. As far as they're concerned, you know, like mom and pop's auto parts may as well be the same thing as AutoZone. Yeah. You know, it may as well, may as well sack them all, you know, um, when that's just, that's just part of how they think. But that is the thing that I do encourage like libertarians or really anyone who has any kind of right wing thinking really should read the manifesto. It's, you know, it's there's you have nothing to lose by doing it. And there's no reason for you to have their playbook right oh, in front absolutely. of you and not to, not to read it. Absolutely. There's I mean, no there's and I see people get caught dumb footed, like kind of caught on the back foot because. They try to argue with comics and they don't know what they actually think. They, yeah, they, they think, think that they I, know or they, they assume based on like uh, um, what they see roaming around on Twitter or, um, you know, what they've seen in the news and stuff. But really, uh, to understand uh, any ideology, like you have to you have to go to the source. You have to yeah, you have to really much. get down and dirty and like and and read read the the different uh, the, the manifestos, the the um the writings the uh any kind of speeches or anything like that because those those are what really opened op- open everything up and give you a insight into it i mean same thing goes for you know libertarianism i mean i know that there's a lot of people that claim um you know libertarianism and, and like they don't know uh they don't know any of the the literature now with that being said, I mean, there's so much literature you can go on, yeah. you know, uh, it's very to, dense too. With, with, with the Mises Institute. Like there's, I mean, there's just a long, super long list of different, different, uh, um, pieces I, of literature that, in, uh, in, the, in preparation for this interview, I, I tried to speed my speed read my way through socialism by Mises again today. And I got, <laughs> I got, I got 60 pages in, I got pretty far in fairness to me, but I was just like, geez, Louise. You know, his, his signal to noise ratio really could use quite quite a lot of improvement. You know, he is if it's it's really really just very very exceptional how just how dense he man just just pack that in there. And that's somewhere where, where a guy like Marx has a little bit of an advantage because Marx can say a little bit more succinctly. Now, Marx sure. is long winded too. Yeah. All those guys back then writing in that time period, you're kind of expected to write long winded. You know. But he managed to even make it a little bit more digestible. And that's kind of ended up working in their favor because they have something that's easier for people to understand. Um, yeah. And obviously, whenever in comparison, like, I mean, whenever you look at uh, just the ease of access, I guess it does make a difference. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely encourage people of. Uh, of all walks, whether you're libertarian, conservative, or what have you, or even if you think you're a communist, it might be a good idea to actually go and you know read the manifesto. And beyond that, um, if you disagree with uh, whichever ideology, whether it's it's communism or or libertarianism, like go go to the source, read the yeah. read the actual source material and see uh, see what everything's really about. Because you probably will surprise yourself, and and obviously you'll educate yourself um, and help you understand and. You know, like you said, be able to actually combat those ideas if you actually understand um, the basis of it. I see people get embarrassed all the time because they get into arguments that they have, you know, they they have no uh, no basis of knowledge in whatever subject it may be. Exactly, you gotta you gotta have ammunition before you go into the fight. You yeah. know, um, like there was this. I'm not gonna say any names, but there was this one time where I did get into this um disagreement with this guy who was a communist. I think I actually told you about this last time we were talking on one of those Zoom games. This was at a party. I know I shouldn't talk about this stuff at parties, but I was drunk and I started talking to him anyway about it. <laughs> um, and he was kind of taken aback a little bit because he thought I was just going to be one of those guys that just, you know, reads Prager you and, you know, no. just, just, you know, that stuff like that. And he wasn't expecting me to, like, you know, read the literature and stuff like that. You know, so he, was, he was taken aback a little bit by that. And it, it ended up working advantageously to me. So it's like, it really does it give you you have nothing to lose everything the game by managing to know your knowing your opponent knowing who it is you're debating with and why they believe things are the way they are because here's the other thing you have to keep in mind about art with arguing with people in general or trying to commit someone under your to under your ideas it's that most people out there are not bad people 
mm-hmm. ever in the world. In the world, now there mm-hmm. are some people who are like serial killers who are just really just fucked up yeah. in the head. But most people, like I said, most people have something they believe in that is good. Then, in some way or another, they've gotten something fundamentally wrong somewhere in the mix, and that makes it into something really rather nasty. Um, whether you got like a fascist who you know thinks that's you know who takes something good like solidarity with one's people, always that's good, right? Good. But they take in the something gets some wiring gets crossed in there, and then it becomes something like Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. Yeah. Or you know, you get something like Bin Laden, where you know, this is like, oh God, God is good, God is the greatest. It's awesome. Being religious, very good. I, I encourage people to be religious as long as they're not Scientologists or something. <laughs> but then something a wire gets crossed, and then you get, you know, passenger planes getting hijacked and flow into buildings because God, I guess. I, I must miss that part in the Quran. Um or you know, you get uh or you know, you get in the case of communists, you get guys, you get, you know, people who want to have a just and fair world where, you know, nobody goes hungry or goes without. And then wire gets crossed. And then you end up with lots of people going without and lots of people destitute and ended up basically right back where they started or worse. So you got to keep that in mind when you're talking to people. So you can't, if you assume automatically the person you're talking to is arguing in bad faith and they're just out there to be a dick and they're just bad, they're just evil you're not going to get much of anywhere. You really have to be able to actually understand why people believe the things that they believe. Yeah. And they might, they might have bad reasons for it. They usually do. If you're a red, you probably don't have any good reason to believe anything you believe. But at the same time, you have to know what those reasons are. And you have to be able to, you have to be prepared to respond to the reasons they give you. You have to know what kind of arguments they're going to make and be able to respond to those arguments. You know, that's, that's, yeah, that's, and the I'm, oh, sorry, Mike, uh, the, uh, the thing is, I mean, if you argue with somebody and then got to their ends by uh, waves of, of emotion, it's really hard to logic somebody out of that too. You know, like if somebody is really like, if, if the reason why they are, um, clinging to or, or leaning into communism and stuff is based on their emotion and, and their, uh, their their idea of people being wronged or hurt or the mean you know mean capitalists doing this or that you know I mean it's really hard to really break it down to somebody like that and and try to have a a logical discussion of how uh you know how markets work and how uh, true free markets can can uh, rise people out of poverty um, and uh, you know ever when you deal with people, you just have to kind of, I feel like that's kind of the first thing I do is just see like, where, where does this person come from? Are they coming from a, a balanced, uh, logical perspective and, and they want to have, they want to try to prove their point while I'll prove mine. Then cool. We can have these discussions, but you know, so many people, uh, and not just, that's not just communists, obviously there, there's a ton of oh, conservatives play, and, play, play and oh, liberals that, that cling to their emotions and how they feel emotionally. And, and a lot of it is based in fear. Um, but, uh, you know, whenever you try to argue with somebody or try to uh, logic somebody out of their, their stance, whenever they're so they're clung to it emotionally, it's just not, it's not really going to go well. Yeah. At the same point though, I mean, I remember in my oral communication classes, you know, people, People think both in terms of their raw emotions and the kind of higher logical level of ability, you know, logos and pathos, as the old yeah. saying goes. Yeah. And you can, uh, an ideal person who's making an argument should be able to appeal to both. Um, you should be able to address, identify what this person thinks of each, if this person is even worth their time to argue with. You know, so you can't argue with every person. You know, you're not sometimes, you know, you're, you're not going to get anywhere with arguing with literally every person on earth. You're never going to yeah. be able to do but, you know, you pick, you find, you pick, you know, you pick, uh, you pick weak points. You say, ah, oh, well, this person, maybe I can convince on this one. Oh, this person, you know, you, you pick, you pick little, you pick little weak points there. And then you, you go from there. Um, with that, you know, I, I don't think there's really anyone whose arguments are based purely completely on emotion. They usually are. There's, there's some kind of higher level thought. going on. And I think that those people can usually in some way or, or another be reached somehow. That's is my always been my always been my thinking. Was always been my understanding with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that I guess you you could really you could really work on that. Um, you know, and 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 uh, bring some some light to somebody that might you know flip a switch in their brain. Uh, 
Uh, but generally speaking, I mean, if, if somebody's coming yeah. from an emotional point, I just don't yeah. see. You're, I, you're I don't right. See. I mean, I guess I guess you're right. And you can't always. You don't have all the time in the world to argue with people because yeah. it takes time, and it takes. You really have to. I guess it's really something you have to do with people you know, not necessarily people. Yeah, I mean, I think that face to face, being being in in person or uh, even in a forum like this, I mean, it's a lot easier to uh, try to get your points across and be able to, to cut through some of the stuff versus on Twitter. You know, I mean, it's it's a terrible, terrible way to really try to convert people or try to uh, change people's minds just because it's such a uh, it's yeah, such with, a poor with, format. With, with Twitter, you're basically just like saying things to gain the approval of your own side and increase yeah. one's own clout rather than necessarily trying to Yeah, you're win just trying to dunk on people. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're trying to sometimes you gotta do that. Yeah. Sometimes you gotta dunk on people. I'm not saying don't dunk on motherfuckers, pardon my language again. Sometimes you gotta dunk on somebody. But yeah. Um but I do uh what what time was it? Uh we're at like ten twenty. 1020. Yeah. I, I do I do gotta be going here in just a little bit, but I just wanted to kind of briefly wrap up what I was what I was saying here. Is that if you look at communists the way they've shown up in various corners of the world at various different times, you will generally find that these are people that had good intentions that went very, very, very wrongly. Now a lot of times you had people that had malicious intentions, but you had people that were very oftentimes had been wronged in some way, were being wronged, and they they thought this is something that they could help them. So if you just come at these people and just think of them like, oh, they're just evil, they're just congenitally wicked and bad, it's it's not going to get you very far. You have to, and in dealing with anything in life, especially this, you have to think about why does someone believe what they believe, and that that I guess kind of sums up uh, what I have to say about the matter. Well, I mean, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I know that uh, uh, you know we talked before and. Um, kind of got we just got on a roll and started digging deep and realizing um you, you have an immense amount of knowledge on the topic um thank you thank, and, you. thank you in different ways and i think it's 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 always interesting to kind of hear um different people's the way that people uh uh talk about it um and explain different things so i think that you can always kind of pick up uh little useful uh useful moments uh out of out of different people's uh, interpretation of of how they uh how they present it. So I definitely appreciate you coming on, man. I mean, it's been, it's been great. We've spent pleasure to be on the program. Absolutely. Hey, heck yeah, man. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, probably will have you on again. Obviously, uh, this shouldn't be the last time. So, uh, we'll, we'll have to try to link you up and get you down here, uh, try to get you in the seat, uh, and, uh, Ooh, that'd be great. and, uh, try to try to do a live, sir. Uh, but once again, I just want to thank you very much. Uh, thanks for your time and, and your knowledge. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, brother. No problem, man. You have a good evening. Okay? All right. Take care, bro. Take care. All right, guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, second episode of uh, Who Who Touched Thermostat. Uh, and uh, be sure to uh, like, subscribe, uh, drop a comment down in the comments section. And uh, let me know uh, anything that uh, you liked about, uh, about this episode uh, or uh, anything that you think that we could improve on. And uh, until next time, appreciate you for tuning in. Take care.
Welcome everybody to uh, the second episode of Who Touched the Thermostat. Uh, I got a very uh, very special guest uh, with some great knowledge, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jacob Levy. He's going to come on. We're going to have a little chit chat about something that uh, is very important to uh, all of us here, and uh, ultimately, uh, hopefully, can spread some awareness and some knowledge on the history and also how communism uh, affects uh, America here today. So. I'd like to officially uh, welcome our guest to uh, the episode, uh, Jacob. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So we're all familiar with communists, but I think when a lot of people talk to, talk them or talk about them, I should say, they sort of almost use it as a buzzword, like people use the word Nazi. Like, you know, we've all been had the accusation thrown at us by leftists, oh, you're a fascist, you're a Nazi, you're blah, 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 blah. It doesn't mean anything. They couldn't exactly break down a few how Italian fascism or German National Socialism works. But they don't care. They just want the name to stick. You know what I mean? And I feel like there are people on the right who sort of use it the same way too. So I think it's a good idea to have a background of what communists actually are and what they actually believe and how they've shown up in places around the world from time to time and what motivates someone to become one. So communists can basically be broadly divided into two types. Um, the overarching theme of them is that they believe in no private property. They believe in a completely classless, fully equal society. But you, uh, you have one school of thought where you get um, what can be basically described as ANCOMs, anarchist communists, who want no, yeah, no state and um, you know, no private property and nothing like that. Then you got you have the guys, um, pardon me, who do want um, a state, and that state would be the collective owner of all the property pardon me, and everything like that in the country. Now, that's a very broad broad simplification of it. Um, communists being communists, they like to break themselves into various little subgroups. They're like, they're like, their infighting is like libertarians, except even more so. You would be astounded. I mean, <laughs> countries, have had, countries have had civil wars over communist infighting. Um, it's really, it becomes really something quite, um, quite spectacular, really. Um, just the way they can break up. I, I, I believe in the 1970s, the British Communist Party split into something like seven different sub-parties. No one was voting for them anyway, so who cares? <laughs> um, now, I want to talk about also, um, so that's the broad, the broad thing is it, it's based on this idea of this equality and justice kind of thing. That on its face sounds good. And I wanted to touch on that too. Um, there's a gentleman named Ad 